0: Colossians chapter 3, will be our text this morning for our reading time, and we'll begin reading verse 1 through verse 17, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, God's Word declares, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long suffering. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Last week we spent all of our time and really just part of one verse. It's an important passage, though, to study and to apply We come now to the final words of Paul to the Corinthians that we have recorded for us. Um, In the course of studying 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we have seen several greetings, both at the beginning of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the ending of 1st Corinthians. We come now to his final greeting, and that's a strange word because greeting usually is at the beginning, but we use this at the conclusion of this letter. And we want to take a little time to study. It is a unique one, not the first part, verse 12 and 13, but rather verse 14, Uh, is the only one of its kind that we have in our scriptures, the only uh, concluding remarks or greeting, with a triadic formula. Uh, We want to look at that, certainly, but we're going to take also some time to consider what often we just... sweep by, and without really considering uh, the significance of what we are called to do, what the Corinthians were called to do as a culmination of what we saw in a nutshell in verses 7 through 11 of all of what Paul is seeking to teach his people, that they do no evil, that they be made complete, that uh, they be responsive to God's word from God's messengers that they be, allow God's people, God's messengers, to edify them, to strengthen them, which is their purpose, recognizing the authority that they carry to do so, that they respond by being of good comfort, of one mind, and living in peace, that God might respond to that by being with us. We come then to these final instructions that would be easy to say this is just a general statement that Paul didn't give a lot of thought to. We have it listed for us, this same instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss. uh, At the end of other passages, both by Paul and by Peter, uh, referring to that act, we have it borne out for us an example within the gospel story of Christ. uh, And we're going to take a little time to uh, look at that and then also the necessity of the saints to greet one another before we consider verse 14. Before we do all that, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our gracious God, only Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be gathered in your name. We thank you for the privilege of having your word before us, we pray you might instruct us in its truth. We might lay hold of it and allow it to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And certainly these are well beyond the capability of one message by a man, but well within the Spirit's work. And so we pray that he might have liberty to move and work in our midst, even now, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've shared, greet one another with a holy kiss is a common statement we find in Scripture. Uh, It is a a statement that has several implications. We have largely uh, thrown this into the pot of cultural milieu, and we have been very careful throughout the book of Corinthians, both first and second, to guard ourselves from subjugating parts of Scripture to culture especially when they are commands. When we are given a command in God's Word and we think, well, that's a cultural thing um, and we can disregard that because it's really not something we do in our culture. And, and maybe we look around within our culture and say, well, let's find its replacement. What is it that we do in our culture that, that is comparable to that, that would replace this instruction? Uh, and certainly, I ag- agree that there are some cultural aspects to this. But I would want to contend with you that when we look to our culture to define our practice within the church, we are taking a very grave step. And that step is to fail to understand that the church, in God's word, is fundamentally countercultural. That culture that we grow up in is the device of men. Now we can look at our culture and see some influence of Christianity upon it. And we can certainly lay hold of those things, but not because we are familiar with them from our culture, but rather because they are directly reflective of God's Word. And this is something that I I was trained in seminary. I was a missionary pre-sem and, and in seminary and took a lot of classes. In fact, on my shelf, at one of my shelves in my office, you'll see an entire row of cross-cultural communication books. Studied extensively. And we were inundated with this idea that if you're going into a different culture, you need to study the culture first and then fit God's word Appropriately into it and not try to fit your culture and jam it into their culture. And again, the fundamental philosophy underlying that ideology is that we come to God's Word through our culture rather than coming to our culture through God's Word. And there is great danger there. In fact, I would contend that that is one of the most dangerous things we do in the handling of God's Word. It has given us permission to ignore large portions of Scripture in their direct commands to us with regard to how we live out our faith. And we, of course, studied these and other aspects of life, church life particularly, in our study in Corinthians. We come now to this final uh, words, and what a simple thing it would simply say to say, greet one another with a holy handshake. Uh, right? Greet one another with a, how How are you doing? An insincere, hi, how are you doing? You say, well, that's the cultural replacement. And my question to you is, how did that come to be? How do we move away from this over the course of Because culture is not static, it is always dynamic, it is always changing and developing. Our culture today um, is very different, and I love how people want to attach um, American ideas and and philosophies back to our founding fathers and their constitution, but the fact is if they walked into your culture today, they wouldn't recognize it as anything that they had designed. Um, There would be almost no connection between them and you So obviously, in the last 250 years, our culture has changed dramatically in dress and appearance and manners, in speech, in attitudes, uh, in areas of modesty, of relationships. Um, Culture changes. And the question is, if culture is so dynamic, why do we then trust in it in our coming to God's word? Because it is a vapor. Whereas God's word is eternal truth. It is stable. And so we come to a very simple statement to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we look at cultures today on our planet that still do this. When I was in Peru, we saw that being carried out within the church. And uh, when we left Peru, and it took some time, it took a little time for it to kind of... We said goodbye, we were getting on the bus, and I leaned over and gave Mrs. Lossing a kiss on the cheek, and she says, oh, you're Peruvian. It's not Peruvian. When we look at the instructions in God's Word, um, this, I believe, is a very important one. And I want to share why, and this is going to take us out of, out of this passage, of course, and into some other parts of it. Um, one of the problems, I believe, that we have moved away from this instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss is because we have made that thing unholy. That is, that we have uh, isolated and our culture and the milieu in which we are in has determined that that act is uh, an act of sensuality. We've sexualized the kiss to such a point that we have eradicated it from any other usage. But in God's Word, we find it very differently used. And yes, we look at cultures, and you know, we always get nervous going to those cultures where you know, they'll come up and, and uh, what is it, the French give you a kiss on each cheek as a greeting. I uh, say, they are weird. Um, no, I think maybe it's just because they haven't gone the road that we have gone to take an act and make it something that is only uh, one-sided. It's only uh, of, of one quality. And God's word doesn't hold it there. And We often think about, well, a holy kiss would be one that is nonsensual. And certainly that is true. I don't discount that. In fact, I would emphatically say that. But I think also what is in mind by the authors of a holy kiss is not that the only uh, distinction between that uh, in use within the church is sensuality, but it is another level. And this takes us into the Gospels, where we know that our Savior was betrayed by, of all things, a kiss. And so we can say, well, you know, there's an example we should try to, you know, maybe not use that. That is an unholy one. In other words, it, it was an an act of honor, an act of respect, an act um, that was one that saying of intimacy, that was betrayal. And this is not something I want to create in our church. We are not going to begin going around. We're not going to practice this this morning um, and going on of insincerity, because that's an unholy thing. But rather, if we are full knowledge of what we are doing and understand its truth, and so as do the ones that we engage with in greeting them in this manner, that this is an act of honoring. That we're not going to betray this with insincerity as Judas did, our Savior. Of disloyalty. That we take it upon ourselves to understand the purpose and to value that aspect of the Christian life. And I want to contend with you that a holy kiss is referring to one in which we have a declared desire for intimacy. And again, we use the word intimacy and we usually think sexually. And we are not talking about that at all, but spiritually. And in the area of openness and of uh, Tenderness towards one another. And we read in Colossians earlier today about how we're supposed to be tender-hearted toward one another. And this is that portrayal, that we are communicating something to one another that I'm going to be open to you and intimate with you. I'm going to be tender-hearted towards you. That This is not all those immoral things that Colossians list. If you want to go over the Colossians very quickly, Colossians 3 that we read um, he lists off all these uh, horrible things of passion and evil desire and uncleanness and, and fornication. That, that we're all we're, we're not wanting to uh, develop that at all. That is not the objective of the holy kiss that we're to greet one another with. But rather, it is this uh, description, verses 12 and following: tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. That we are in this intimate relationship with one another. And I will contend that this is critical to a a victorious Christian life uh, as a body of saints. And I'm going to try to substantiate that statement to you. That intimacy among God's people is a critical element to you living a victorious Christian life. We find throughout Scripture um, statements that really make us uncomfortable. Um, statements like in James which says that we are to confess our sins to one another. That's a level of trust and of intimacy that is very dangerous and we always recognize that. That when I do that, I run the risk that this person will then become a gossip and, and that it will uh, destroy my reputation, um, although that in and of itself is a denial of the humility that Colossians and other pastors called us to, um, that our reputation should be one of absolute honesty and of willingness to be transparent to one another. And I would contend that rather than leading to trouble, it will lead to righteousness. My contention is, is that within... Personal privacy, there is a higher degree of temptation to sin. And we live in a society um, that values very highly personal privacy. We don't talk about what each other makes. We don't talk about just fundamental things of life. We certainly don't let people into our cubicle, And we have taken on that mentality that here's my cubicle and and Americans' personal space is just a a reflection, really, of our attitude. That, you know, don't you violate my personal space. And so even in conversation, we don't get too intimate with people, right? We don't get too close to them. Um, You know, if they get too close to us, we start doing this, don't we? (laughs) It starts to make us uncomfortable to have that intimate of a conversation. I would contend that our abandonment of a passage like this is really an abandonment of intimacy with God's people. And when you abandon the intimacy with God's people, you also abandon the accountability within that intimacy. That they know what is going on in your life, in detail, that it is in a lack of intimacy, that we have lack of accountability within within that context that we have uh, an unusual liberty to sin. And one of the easiest ways to limit your temptations is to get yourself out of those environments. Well, how? Well, get with some God's people. We're saying... That song, you know, that we're going to distance ourselves from those that lead us to sin. But we need to become close, intimate with those who would lead us in righteousness. Who would hold us accountable and say, who would be willing to say, that's just wrong. What are you doing that for? And frankly, in our society, that is the most unpermitted thing to be spoken in any relationship. True. my poor son encountered cultural shock. Well, I'll call it that. It's culture shock. When he goes down to college and he says things and everyone goes, I can't believe you said that. Why? Because in our house, we're accustomed to just putting it out there. Some of the things he says, they go, and he goes, that's funny in my house. Some of it's just humor because we have a weird humor in our house. Um, Some of it is just getting your face. Because that's what biblical intimacy is about. It's about a willingness to risk the relationship for something that's more important than the relationship. That is, that person's walk with God is more important than their relationship with me. And I'll put it... At risk, over and over and over again, every Sunday I put it at risk in the pulpit, um, put it at risk, your relationship with me, all you have to do is say, I'm tired of hearing that guy and walk away. Correct? You have that liberty. I take that risk every Sunday. That I'm going to offend somebody out there with something I said or didn't say or said wrong, and they're going to walk away, and it's happened. It's happened. But what's the motivation? For Paul writing these two letters, what's his motivation? We've already looked at that. To edify the saints. It is more important that the Corinthians walk with God than that they esteem Paul. Or that they have any relationship with Paul at all. And so when we come to intimacy within our church we find that as we contend against it and we see culture moving away from true intimacy that requires honesty and humility and mutual accountability and um, a willingness to to be transparent. We use that word, but it's so infrequently done. Um, We have isolated ourselves even in this age of quote-unquote communication. The age of technology has not increased intimacy. It has destroyed it. We create the persona we want in social medias. And we have a society that is built now upon what is politically correct and will be, if anyone sidesteps out of that road um, in the social arena, we just castigate them, don't we? If you have a a weird, twisted kind of sense of humor like me, if I were on Twitter, I would be in so much trouble all the time. Because I think some things are funny and then other people would be offended by them. I think it's okay for cops to have a sense of humor on their Facebook page. They don't have to get reprimanded or Put on leave because of it. We have warred against intimacy. And the direct result of that war against intimacy within our culture is opportunity to sin. Because of so much privacy, no one knows. we're all a little shocked and aghast that maybe the government knows. But what can they really do about it in this recent NSA thing? But ultimately, because we think we are isolated and that no one can know, therefore I am free to continue in this sin. And this is a direct result of the loss of intimacy within our church, within our families, within even our marriages. We find an expectation in God's Word of an openness. And I want to just share with you this idea of embassy and temptation. Um, When does Satan come to tempt our Savior when he is with his brethren? No, he goes off alone into the wilderness and there he's tempted by Satan. He's driven there by the Holy Spirit. We find him in Gethsemane imploring, imploring his disciples, stay and watch with me. Watch with me. Pray with me. He goes off. He is engaging himself in one of the most difficult decisions that he has to make of surrendering his will to the Father's will in, in, in what is confronting him in the next 24 hours. And he begs, essentially, for the companionship and prayer of his disciples. They fail him miserably. And yet, in all of this, our Savior sinned not. So I do not want to imply that isolation will bring sin. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying it gives an environment that gives you a liberty to sin in your mind. Because for most of us, we really fail in understanding the intimacy we're supposed to have with God. Of His omnipresence. So we are called to an intimate relationship with one another, and I believe it is pictured in this command that we greet one another with a holy kiss. That we are recognizing um, a relationship between us that is on a level that of intimacy that means I am accountable to you, you are accountable to me mutually, uh, not only for uh, guarding ourselves from sin, but to... Uh, nodding one on to righteousness, and that this is the calling of God upon the church, is that we have an intimacy, one with another. And that in that context, we can have the love of God rule in our hearts and expressing that love to one another. As John so well communicates in his gospel, as well as in 1 John, uh, brethren, you need to love one another. That is not a lip service, love. It is a sacrificial commitment to each other of intimacy. Intimacy cannot be established um, in a church service. Look at yourselves. Can't be done here. Can it? You're all sitting facing one direction. I'm standing here looking at you. Um, some of you are sitting close to each other. Some of you aren't. Um, this is one directional. Uh, this is not really intimacy. So where is intimacy established for the Christian community? Well, it's in greeting one another, and I will contend not just before and after church, but in your daily lives that we are actively involved in one another's life that our homes are places of commonality, that is that we all hold them in common, that we share with one another, as Acts describes the disciples doing. That we have all things in common. And that it's more than just the pastor's home that's always open. For my children, that's been their norm. They just, to have people in and out and how many people are for this meal? We don't know. Who's here? Anybody might show up, so let's put an extra potato in the pot and make sure we're ready. Why? Because our home is not just ours in terms of the links, It is the churches. Our lives are not just ours, it belongs to our church family. I, I'm not going to be able to talk too much about your lives, but I do need to talk about my role as pastor because of what I get regularly um, in information from well-meaning individuals trying to help pastors. And overwhelmingly, uh, the statements are on several levels. Number one, be careful who you trust in the church. Uh, Number two, make sure you guard your home. Guard your family, um, because that's your first priority, is your family. And by the way, that is not my first priority. Uh, My family is an equal priority Um, underneath one priority, which is that I want to glorify God. Um, And so, no, we do not worship the family, and I've tried to portray that to you as a church family within the context of my family. And worship of the family has gone too far that we make it a priority above ministry. I employ my family in ministry, And to say, let's go set up the church, and they balk at it or complain and grumble about it, it's a matter of discipline. Say, no, this is who we are. We define ourselves by ministry, and it's a joy to see my children picking up that philosophy, that it's a godly philosophy, that my life is something to be shared with others. Not just around my table, but at any time, and in any place, and if I'm engaged in any activity that I'm unwilling to do that, then I need to question that activity. If I'm unwilling to share it within the context of my church, then maybe I shouldn't be involved in that at all. If I wouldn't invite my pastor to it, why am I taking my Lord to it? Because He is going with you. I have the further privilege of having um, a computer that, <laughs> that all of you get to. Well, mostly Bill. Um, what a privilege to have a guard. That intimacy. Oh, you see how intimacy guards us from sin and encourages us to righteousness. That it's always perkling in the back of my mind. Can I engage in this when i got an open house? No. Therefore, it's okay for me not... In fact, it's best for me not to engage in it. All built upon the concept of intimacy that is portrayed, that is pictured in this greeting one another with a holy kiss. That we show in this act a willingness to be intimately involved with one another That we might spur one another on to love and to good deeds. It's a simple act. It is further an act of honor and respect. And we again have divorced it from that, but in other cultures they still maintain that. But whether it's maintained in their culture or not, we find it in the biblical culture, going all the way back in the Old Testament, spanning thousands of years, this act... Was one by which we honored another. And it hasn't been so far back in our culture that it was still expected of a gentlemanly act that he would kiss the hand of a lady. Correct? As an act, not sensual, but of honor, of respect. Honoring her as a weaker vessel. And now we walk up and handshake a woman like she's a man which I refuse to do anymore. I stopped doing that a couple years ago. And the girls in Word of Life Club have figured it out. They no longer come up to me to shake my hand like this. They do it like this. You know, I say, they just turn their hand over? Yeah, because they know I'm not going to grab their hand like they're a a boy or a man. I'm going to grab their little fingers and I'm going to give them a little shake because they're young ladies and I'm going to treat them like that. See, our culture has gotten so far away from the roles of society that honor one another. And this is one of them. Jesus Christ, when he walks into the Pharisees' home and and he's got a woman weeping at his feet and kissing his feet and, and they... That his host takes issue with it, one of the things Jesus says is, you know, I came into this, you didn't wash my feet, and you didn't give me a kiss. You see, that man dishonored Christ as the host by not greeting him with a kiss. It was a statement. I refuse to be intimate with you. I refuse to it. And it is not a matter of, of whatever we, milieu we want to put around it. Christ says, you know, this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You won't even give me a, 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 a kiss of greeting. An honor, a statement of a willingness to be intimate. Of a willingness to submit to one another. A willingness to honor each other. And Paul says, listen, when you greet one another, you know, do it with intimacy. And to say, hi, how you doing? Is about is the least intimate thing we could ever do. It has its roots in intimacy, doesn't it? We, I want to know how you are. But it has become empty, right? Now you say, how are you? We don't expect an answer other than, hey, I'm all right. How are you? All right. Cool. Are we intimate? Nope. Handshakes used to be intimate, by the way, too. Um, I, all the ladies in the front row, I can't use them. All right, P- Mr. Fry is going to be my guinea pig here. See, this is how we handshake now. <laughs> Let me hit your fist with my fist. Where's the intimacy there? Is there any intimacy? In fact, it is a description of not willing to be intimate. <clears throat> Here's my wall. There's your wall. We'll smack each other. Yeah, you stay on your side. I'll stay on mine. In the olden days, an intimate would be. Now we'll do it for real. Not just one-handed, two-handed, and many times right to the shoulder. Where are you? you Good thing. It is drawing into intimacy. We've even lost that. That was a greeting is a recognition that this physical contact is is, is making a declaration of caring. And don't you dare engage in this without the attitude behind it. Because then, you are like Judas. Using an act of intimacy to betray. This is what a gossip does. A gossip is someone who claims a desire to be intimate, but can't be trusted. They're betrayers. They're betraying your intimacy. That's why gossip is such an evil sin. So we have this command. We can ignore it. We can substitute it. But ultimately, we have to understand its purpose. It's to communicate something. And that communication is... I love you, I care about you, I honor you, I want an intimate relationship with you, and I can be trusted to guard that relationship. And frankly, in society today, that's so rare that it's almost non-existent. And so, yes, I make young men shake my hand. And if you think they can't learn to do that, I did it at West Mesa. Every one of those young men come up and shake my hand. They don't put out a fist to bump me. Don't do it. And I tell them, shake my hand like a man. I'm I'm willing to be invested in your life. I'm willing to talk about important things with you. Even things the world might say aren't politically correct to talk about because they might offend you. And I'm okay with that. Because there's something more important than whether you're offended by me is the fact that you're already offending God. And that needs to be corrected. All of that is built in that an intimacy and our society wars against it. And within the context of the church, we've allowed that Poison in. And I believe one evidence of that is how odd it would be if we started doing this. It goes on, by the way, this is extending beyond just your local church. That's really the context of verse 12. And then verse 13 uh, expands the idea of intimacy to all the saints. You greet one another, your local church, with a holy kiss. But there's also a a relationship that you have beyond this level of intimacy. There's another level of intimacy that is strange to us, and that is all the saints, that the church universal um, is our body, is our brethren, and that their cares and their concerns and their needs fall on us. They fall heavy on us. We carry them. We we concern ourselves with them. We pray over them. We make them our own. We can't just simply walk away and turn a blind eye to it and, and just ignore it. And thus we have this greeting from all the saints. And, and we missed this, the importance of this. And I saw it when I was in Cuba a lot more. It was critically important to them that I bring a greeting from Desert Hills Baptist Church. And it was critically important to them that I carry to you a greeting from them. They are perhaps one of the most isolated churches around. It was important to them, vital to them, that they recognize that there is a body of saints beyond them that would pray for them and, and carry their burdens and, and, and meet some of their needs. We have a relationship. If we have intimacy within our church, the natural outflow of an intimate church is to reach out to its universal church. So Paul recognizes that, that not only are you to greet one another with a holy kiss, but all the saints greet you, they can't kiss you because they're miles and miles away. But they still have this relationship with you and they have a closer relationship with you, I can have a closer relationship with a believer in India than I can with a lost family member that might be in my very house. I can share intimacy with them. I can share Christ with them. I can cry with them, I can laugh with them, I can, I can be engaged with them on a much deeper, more significant level than I can with someone who has been raised in my house who rejects Jesus Christ. But the fact is, is that that's foreign to us because we have entered into a family worship, a blood worship, that the world entertains instead of the blood of Christ, the Bible espouses so all the saints are brought into this tender relationship that we are called to. And now I have, that was my introduction. Now we have (laughs) 15 minutes to talk about verse 14. In the midst of all this intimacy, in the midst of all this wonderful fellowship, and it's no mistake that verse 14 is going to introduce us to that word, the word is communion. There in the New King James or fellowship. Um, and let's, for the sake of my message today, let's call it intimacy. As I said earlier, this is the only greeting in Scripture that is triadic. That is, that both the Father, Son, and the Spirit are spoken of in the midst of a greeting. There are other triadic statements in Scripture, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is the only one. There are other triadic Declarations, but nowhere is it within the context of a greeting like this. So, this is our only one. It is unique. Uh, most of them have Jesus Christ and God, uh, but very seldom do they carry the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's, again, tying back to the original issues in Corinth, which was division. Paul is trying to draw them back to intimacy. <laughs> You've been divided, you've been separated, you've been isolating yourselves, you've been contentious among yourselves, you've been um, working on that really hard. Now it's time to turn this around, and the real end result of really living out 1st and 2nd Corinthians, living out biblical Christianity is an intimacy with each other now instead of division, and an intimacy with all the saints, the church universal, and an intimacy with God. Verse 14 describes the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. His unmerited favor, his positive desires for us, Paul desires for them. The love of God, that love which we have expounded for us in many other passages of Scripture, of a boundless willingness to to sacrifice oneself for those who hate you. No expectation of anything in return. A love which says, I will seek out the interests of others before my own. A love that moved him to humility, to humble himself. This is the love of God. Who had the right to destroy but exercise instead the privilege of delivering. This Paul desired for the Corinthian people. And then the communion, the intimacy of the Holy Spirit, he also desired for them. That We have this fellowship with him um, that is by him and of him. Um, the Scripture uses many of those words, and we 're not going to separate them and say, "Well, this who does, who initiates it? Um, well, it is of the spirit. the Spirit is the one that that creates by him. it is through him, um, but it also um, is of him that is that that we participate as well. We have responsiveness there that a communion is not a one way act but a but a two way responsiveness to one another. And so Paul says, oh, that you would have this in- interaction with the Holy Spirit, that as, that as He empowers, that you would obey and do. That as He illuminates, that you would obey and believe. That as He comforts, that you would respond and be comforted. That as He does His part, you will be responsive to Him, and He will be further responsive to you. This is Fellowship. This is that communion. And it's a level of intimacy, again, that most of us are uncomfortable with because, frankly, it's, it's largely lost in our society. And so we seek intimacy with, with fictional characters. We seek intimacy with, with pieces of electronics. We seek intimacy with all these other things because we are built for intimacy. And God understands that. He designed it that way, by the way. I want to remind you, the garden, the first thing that wasn't good. Do you remember? The very first thing that was not good was the man should be alone. God says, that's not good. That was before sin. Takes sin completely out of the equation and you still have a circumstance that God says you need Fellowship. You need intimacy. You need this. You need one like yourself. You need that. It is not good to be alone. And similarly, we have this willingness to have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, but it is not in a vacuum of human relationships. It's within the context of intimacy with God's people that He draws into an intimate relationship with your God. Do not divorce these two from one another. I think there's great error there. You'll walk in the ways of those that want to go off into monasteries and have no relationship with anybody and and think that that's the pathway to um, spiritual maturity. That's grave error. Certainly there needs to be some level of alone with God on occasion. Certainly that is given there. I'm not displacing that. I'm saying that if that's all there is, you are missing one of the... First of all, you're disobeying a direct command that makes sure that don't ever forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need to be gathered. You need to be with other believers. They need to be active in your life. Um, Frankly, church is a very passive thing for most of you. You are passively together, not actively. I'm actively engaging you. I'm making eye contact. I see your responses. I know if you're sleeping, how hard a day you had. I know if you're disgusted by what you're hearing or if you're excited. I- I'm active here, and you're actively engaging me, but in terms of each other, it's totally passive. For months, I've been begging you to come early to church, to stay long afterwards. Why? What's the point? The service doesn't start till 10.30, and today 10.35. I think that was David's fault. I'm blaming you, buddy. Yeah. When the adults start playing red light, green light with the kids, we're in trouble. Okay, no, that's, that's... You have to be actively engaged in each other's lives. And that's not by sitting in church together. Don't call this intimacy because you shared a sermon. Intimacy says that here's my life. Not just here's my house, here's here's an hour, here's a here's a event. No, here's my life. I'll share it with you. Can you share your life with me. Or are we all about hiding and keeping these little rooms shut up and locked away, and no one goes in there because um, that's where my sin is, mostly. I've rarely found people unwilling to share their intimacy with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. In fact, most of the hymns that are in our hymn book are a result of people wanting to share something that they have uh, gained from their walk with God. Oh, that we would have an active life, not only with our Father, Son, with our, with our Savior, with our, with our Comforter, Certainly, this is a desire that I have for you as much as Paul had for them and Paul has for the, all the saints. But the expectation of God is that this will be lived out in a brotherhood of intimate relations with others who are also seeking to live out the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. This is not just the individual's endeavor, but it is the body's endeavor. The more we isolate ourselves in our Christian life, not just in our spiritual pursuits, and I, I hate to use that word because every pursuit of your life should be a spiritual endeavor. Whether it's your education, whether it's your occupation, whether it's your avocation, um, any relationship, all of it has to be worship. All of it has to be that uh, spiritual engagement. But that we open up that life to one another, that we do not do it in isolation. And yes, everything that these three verses stand for are in stark opposition to the trends of our culture. We are called to be countercultural agents. And it starts in our relationship in the culture of this church, of this assembly. And it extends to the assembly of the Saints Universal. And it is founded. Upon the grace of our Lord Jesus. What He has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And the love of God that we were so undeserving to be recipients of its benefits. And of a fellowship with the Spirit that confounds me that the Holy Spirit would take residence in Fleshly Kirk. Confounds me. But this is the foundation of our relationship with one another. And when that is there, there is no enticement to sin within the context of the intimacy within our church family. But rather, that we are constantly spurring each other on. Goading each other. To do right this kind of intimacy is dangerous sets you up to be betrayed by untrustworthy people I recognize that there's just too much to be gained by it to abandon it because. Some people abuse it. Our Savior himself is our example. One of his own. One of his inner twelve. With whom he had invested everything. Abandoned him with a kiss. Another of his inner three denied him. At his greatest hour of need. Yeah, there's a risk in it. I don't deny it. But I contend that there is so much benefit, that it cannot, and in fact, necessity for it, that we cannot allow those who abuse it to dissuade us from seeking it every opportunity with God's people. And Finally, I do need to add in a reminder from our study in Corinthians that this intimacy is reserved for God's people. It is not to be sought among the world. What fellowship has light with darkness? That's the same word. Communion. Intimacy. What intimacy are you having with Lost. No intimacy needs to be reserved for those who have received the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and are in fellowship, communion with the Holy Spirit. That's a close. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the grace of Jesus Christ and the sweet intimacy that we can have with your Spirit. Or we are certainly not deserving of it at its onset and we still look at our lives and see that really hasn't changed. So we beg your mercy and grace upon us to abound in us. and Lord, we pray that we might first correct our lack of intimacy before we start worrying about symbolically declaring it in our greetings we praise those in Christ Jesus name amen